Let's pray. Father God, we ask that as we gather round your word this morning, that my words will be faithful to you and that you might draw us into relationship with yourself. In Jesus' name, Amen. Once upon a time, there was a man who was born and raised on a beautiful island with spectacular scenery and surrounded by a crystal clear blue sea. Throughout a long and happy life, he lived on that island. He married there, he fathered children, he even became a grandfather, all on his beloved island. He never left it, and he loved it so much that his dying wish was that he would be buried with some of the native soil clutched in his hand. And sure enough, one day he died and he reached the gates of heaven. And God welcomed him at the gates. But he said, if you want to enter, you must first let go of the soil clutched in your hand. The man couldn't do it. Years passed. He stood at those gates and then his wife died and she went up to heaven and there she found her husband still at the gate clutching his soil and she tried to persuade him to let go but no, he refused and she entered the joyful embrace of God and he remained outside. More years passed. One by one his children died each arrived at the gates of heaven to find their father still stood there, stoiled, clutched firmly in his palm. And each child tried to talk him into letting go of the soil. But still he refused. And they too were greeted with joy at the gates of heaven by God. But their father remained at the gate. Many more years passed. And still he stood at the gates of heaven with the soil tightly in his hand. And then one day his granddaughter died. His first granddaughter. The one who had given him a new lease of life in his middle to old age. The one who lit up his room simply by entering it. The one who gave him some of his most precious moments as she fell asleep on his lap listening to his stories by the fireside. In his enthusiasm to greet her, he ran to her. He stretched out his arms wide to enfold her in a great big hug. And as he did so, he opened his palms and the soil fell from his hands. And God rejoiced as the old man and his granddaughter entered heaven together. Where to the man's immense surprise, he found that heaven contained his entire native island, only more beautiful and radiant with the love of God. It's a tragedy that all too often we can miss the good that can come into our life because we refuse to let go of what we already have. And the same can be true for what God has for us. 
Anyone who tries to take Jesus seriously will sooner or later discover that we sometimes struggle to grasp, believe, or follow Jesus. And the passage we share today has got to be one of the hardest to get our heads around. Maybe not so much the grain of wheat part. We kind of get that. I mentioned a few weeks ago some tomato seeds that I'd planted. Well, I'm now tending little plants, willing them on, noticing every little change in them. And what started out as a little seed has become a plant. And in time, I trust it will produce tomatoes, which more tomatoes than I know what to do with, really. Or in a few places in our house, we have conkers. Supposedly, they just tear spiders. There's probably absolutely no scientific basis for that, but hey. Or when I was a kid, I would collect those same type of conkers for a very different reason. To use them in battle against other people's conkers. And if I got through the autumn with one of my conkers intact, well, wow, that was great. I had the best conker. But a conker sat in the corner of our living room will always just be that, a conker. Even on the end of a string, if I managed to smash everyone else's conkers, if I conquered all of them, it would still just be a conker. But if it were to be planted into the ground, the seed would break open and in time we'd see a tiny shoot, then a sapling and if left long enough it would grow into a tree. And for a conquer to fulfil its true destiny, does it doesn't simply mean smashing up other conquers or even repelling spiders. Used that way it will only ever be a conquer. No, it's to become a tree. And when that seed is to be planted in the ground, when it breaks open and the new life within it begins to emerge, in time there will be playgrounds for the children battling it out with conquerors from that tree. So now, we get the seed part. It's the next bit of what Jesus says that bothers us. The one who loves their life will lose it whilst the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Hey, Jesus, come again. That just runs counter to all our instincts. We live in a society influenced by, or at the very least, described by Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Any of you who have done management, psychology, sociology, whatever, you might have come across this. It's often presented as a triangle or pyramid with several levels. And as someone climbs higher and higher up the pyramid, so for the sake of simplicity, their quality of life improves. We need our basic needs met. Food, water, warmth, rest. And once we've secured these, we want safety and security. And then at the next level, we yearn for belonging, love, friendship. And still we continue to climb and we have our esteem needs met. 
prestige, feelings of accomplishment. And then at the top, we have self-actualization. We achieve our full potential as people. Self-actualization. If Maslow was to be believed, that was the pinnacle of being human. So what would he have made of what Jesus says here? And who do we find easier to believe? Does Jesus really want us to hate life? <laughs> I know that sometimes the stereotype of the solemn, stern, judgmental killjoy might give you that impression. But how does it sit with other sayings of Jesus like, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Besides, why would he tell us to hate something with a promise that if we manage to keep that command, we'll get to keep it forever? And what have those two sounds got to do with each other anyway? And let's be honest, if we take that saying at face value, we have not exactly been very faithful to Jesus over the last 12 months or so, have we? We have taken some quite stringent measures to keep people safe, to preserve life. We have done that in the name of caring for one another, of loving our neighbour, of not being a source of disease spreading amongst our community. Is Jesus saying we were wrong to do that? No, of course not. And yet, something of our experience of the last year or so might speak of the wisdom of what Jesus says here. A few people have commented to me that when their birthday comes around this year, they're, they're not going to add the last year to their age because they haven't used it. But more seriously, we have taken steps to preserve life in the last year. But for many, it's come at great cost. It's cost us many of the things that brought the greatest joy to us. And for many people, life has all but come to a standstill. For some of them, the thought of even starting it again is quite daunting. We've saved life. But have we used it? We've spared life. And I believe it was the right thing to do. But many will question, have we been living or existing? It's worth pointing out some of the background to this kind of love-hate language Jesus used. It said something about what you were committed to. Jesus said nobody could serve two masters. They would love one and hate the other. And yet you know full well that you might, work, you might well work for two people and like them both. But unless you're very lucky, there will come a time where you have to make a choice, when they will make competing demands, and you'll have to decide which one takes priority. You might have all sorts of reasons why you make the choice you do. Maybe you like one better. Maybe one pays better. Maybe you're more scared of one than the other. But within the language Jesus uses here, the one you prioritise will be the one you are said to love 
and the other you will be said to hate. Not necessarily anything to do with your emotions towards them, just your actions. You'll see it in the language of covenants in that period. A smaller power might pledge their allegiance to a bigger power in return for their protection and say a war. And they agree that if they're going to get protection from the bigger power, they won't look to the bigger power's enemies. And they use that similar sort of love-hate relationship type language. Another side to it was that it was an idiom in Aramaic. Just as we might use the expression hitting the books to describe studying, and yet normally, unless you get really frustrated with a difficult problem or concept, it doesn't involve physical violence. Or we talk about someone being a bad apple or things going pear-shaped. And if you didn't really understand English, you'd wonder where the fruit bowl is. Aramaic had similar ideas. Loving your life was about living it very cautiously, never taking risks, desperately trying to keep everything exactly as it is. By contrast, hating your life was about being open to the possibility of change, of, of newness, about being prepared to risk what you've got, living generously in the hope that you might gain something better. You can go through life desperately trying to keep everything just as it is. But you know what? The world will keep moving. It's the nature of things. They change, they evolve, they move on. You know that person who refuses to change their technology, you still want to use that Amstrad word processor from the 1980s? Eventually it goes wrong. They can't fix it, they can't get the parts. Nobody's supporting the software. And 40 years of work gone like that. Life whether we like it or not, involves change. And all change involves loss. And all loss brings pain. And that's why we resist it. We can fight it or we can be open to change, to trust God with it. And yes, we may have to face the pain and we may continue to bear the scars. But we trust that something new can be born of it. That's what Jesus is talking about here. We pass through life's various stages. Faculties come and go. Health, mobility, security, independence, relationship. All of them good, precious gifts. We are blessed if we have them. But all of them transitory. All of them. That's their nature. And we can desperately try to cling to it. But when we do, there's a double tragedy. In desperately trying to cling to it, we can fail to appreciate the present moment. What we have, what God longs to give us now. And meanwhile, what we've got slips through our fingers.
or we can hold it more loosely. We can trust God with it, give thanks and appreciate the blessings he brings to us whilst we have them. But when the time is right, we release our grip. We let it go. And that is painful. Let no one deny that. But if we can let it go, we're freed for the next stage of the journey, for the new life God has for us. And we can do it trusting that although we struggle to see it, God can be at work in all things for our good. Earlier I mentioned Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I did that for a reason, because it has an interesting backstory. It's believed that amongst other influences, Maslow was influenced by time he spent on a Blackfoot Reservation in Canada in the late 1930s. The Blackfoot conceive of reality in the form of a teepee, made up of different levels that converge into one another. It's thought that could well have influenced the pyramid thing, though others argue that that had more to do with the way later writers interpreted Maslow's work. However, Although Maslow might have been influenced by the Blackfoot, it could be argued that he got the pyramid the wrong way round. Self-actualization describes the dream of the West, as we call it today. Whereas Maslow noted that the Blackfoot were not motivated by the kind of things that drive our societies. In particular, they didn't consider wealth important in terms of accumulating possessions or property. True status and prestige in their culture was found in what you gave away. In their view, we are born with a divine spark. What Jews or Christians would consider the image of God. But we were born for something bigger than us. Rather than me just achieving everything I wanted for me, it was just the basis for my taking my place in my tribe and achieving their sacred purpose. And at the head was cultural perpetuity, where we pass on our wisdom, our way of being. And only if we were doing that were we fulfilling our true destiny together. And that says something about this passage. How does Jesus begin? Now is the Son of Man to receive great glory. And when does Jesus say this? Right after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. When people have waved their branches, they've cheered Jesus on like a king. They've shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, coming from anyone but Jesus, how would you hear those words about 
receiving great glory. In fact, even coming from Jesus, given what's just happened, if you didn't know what was going to come next, how would you hear it? We'd probably hear it in the Maslowy type way. But in the very next sentence, Jesus turns that expectation on its head. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is describing himself as the grain of wheat. He's the one about to fall into the ground. He's about to be killed. He's about to be broken open. But through that, new life will emerge and will flow and be open to all. Jesus flips those expectations because he knows he is part of a bigger story. That by taking his place in the story amongst us, he will be fulfilling his sacred purpose. And not just he, but all those who put their trust in him will find their true destiny as children of God. But he goes further. He adds, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's not just for him. Jesus lays the model for all of us. That by taking our place in the story of God, we become all God created us to be. And that involves trusting him with what we have. All that we have. And that can involve not clinging too tightly to what is transitory. Over the next weeks, months, and so many areas of life, we will move into some kind of new normal, whatever that looks like. And we might long for things to go back to how they were. But they won't. Because the world has moved on. And whether we fully appreciate it right now, know this. Each one of us has been changed by the last 12 months. So we can try to cling to what we have. But if we do, we may live out the double tragedy. That we don't appreciate the present moment with all its opportunities because we're too busy trying to cling to something that is already slipping through our fingers. Laying hold of what God has for us may involve letting go of what we have. It can mean relaxing our grip, trusting that those seeds which will fall will ultimately bloom into new life and that that life will be good. It isn't easy. All change involves loss and all loss involves pain. But if we choose that path, we don't walk it alone. 
We walk it with Jesus who has accompanied us in that journey of loss, even to the point where he has given his own life. But God didn't let down Jesus. And if we walk that road, he will honour it. God won't be our debtor. We can afford to relax our grip, committing what falls to the ground, because we're trusting him for resurrection. Grace and peace.